the Lonely Writers Podcast. Where we're giving a big F you to the stigma surrounding the mental, emotional, and physical struggles that come with the writing process before, during, and after the book deal. I'm your host, Eden Boudreaux, and I am thrilled to be chatting with Courtney Mom, a prolific author of five best-selling books, including the groundbreaking publishing guide before and after the book deal, as well as her forthcoming memoir, The Year of the Horses, which will hit shelves in May of this year. A writing coach and educator, Courtney's mission is to help people hold on to the joy of art making in a culture that is often obsessed with turning artists into brands. Thank you so much for joining me today, Courtney. It's my absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. Of course. I mean, I'm always excited to talk to people who have the wealth of knowledge to be able to put into a book about writing because there's just so much to compile. And then also so excited to talk about other with other memoirists. But what I think I love the most, because I first discovered you really organically, picked your book up off the shelf and fell in love. But what I love is that your, your almost mission is just to bring the joy of writing back. <laughs> and I think that's so exciting. And where did that come from? Like what, what oh. made you want to promote that? <laughs> Well, that's, that's an easy question, actually, because, um, I mean, it's not an easy question to answer and execute in one's life, but it's really clear to me when that all started, and it was simply from realizing a dream and having a book published. You know, this is one of the things I try to tackle in before and after the book deal, my, my kind of publishing guidebook, is at least in America... I think it's, it's a little bit different in other countries, but in America, whether you study writing, you know, at the college level or you go on to get an MFA, it really is, I think, drummed into us that, you know, there's a series, <clears throat> excuse me, there's a series of steps and some involve money or finding money, right? Getting an education, perhaps getting an MFA. If you don't have an MFA, go to the writing workshops, hire a developmental editor, work hard, you know, this is a real American ethic, right? Work hard, make the connections, get the agent, get the editor, get the book deal. Generally, these things tend to be true in America. You, you, you generally, not always, need, need an agent. Um, and you, you need to work really, really hard. But nothing, I couldn't find any resources telling me what to do when I actually got realized that dream and got a book deal and the process of having a book traditionally published with a commercial publisher in America and actually having had success with it. My, my first book was a, a kind of breakout success was of course a phenomenally lucky, exciting and fortuitous thing to happen, but it was also sort of psychologically, I won't say damaging, but fraught, you know, um, nothing and no one and nothing that I'd read had prepared me for what it would feel like, you know, to have a publisher actually 
put me on an airplane, which felt like I knew that was a huge deal, pay for a hotel, huge deal, and then have two people at a book event who were just waiting for someone else. And nothing prepared me for, you know, terrible reviews from strangers who didn't like the book's cover or who didn't like the, a protagonist or, you know, and um, it's fine. We roll with it, but, but um, little by little, I've, you know, I've published, I'm about to have my fifth book come out and I've also self-published. I have chat books and, you know, I've done a lot of publishing in all, all different formats. And at this point with big publishers, micro publishers, the whole thing. And more and more, especially since I've, my first book came out in 2014, I would definitely say within the last six years, there has been such a press such a burden put on us authors to be our own brand ambassadors for a brand that we have not even developed yet. You know, these writers who have not become authors for whatever that means, it could mean publishing in a a literary magazine, it could be, you know, publishing an actual book. Um, Before they even really know what their aesthetic is and what they're good at and what people think of their work, they're expected to come out the gate as veterans, you know, and have newsletters. People who don't even have books yet, you know, that they're supposed to have their kind of marks or their beats, you know, as journalists say, and um, to go on all the platforms, to go on TikTok and Twitter and have a really robust presence on Instagram. And, um, you know, those things, if you start interacting with those platforms in meaningful ways, and by meaningful, I mean that you're, you're starting to make interactions there and engage with people and maybe start to publish content that's fun and, and, and drawing people in, this is going to take a tremendous amount of time. I mean, a tremendous amount of time. And unless you have successfully cloned yourself, what, how are you getting the writing done? And exactly, I sense... In myself, I think I'm, I've, I'm on a good side of it now. Before and a, writing before and after the book deal really helped. Taking some time to publish with um, small presses really helped me gather my, um, put up a shield around my, my creativity. But, you know, it's not, most people can't get, if they have the luck to be, to work from home or have ample time to write, even, even with that great fortune, most people can't kind of sit down and work on fiction or dark, you know, hard memoir and then post a funny Instagram and, and, and it's not that permeable, you know, and the gatekeepers right. think it's really permeable and easy and fun, but it is work and it's work that we're not paid for. You know, right. I don't know, except for, you know, giantly successful people who are getting paid for their podcasts, most of us are going to be asked to do all this labor uh, under the payment of what, if anything, we received for our book advances. And, you know, (laughs) I work in marketing and branding on the side. And so it's sort of astonishing because um, I get paid much better (laughs) in marketing and branding. And I know what it costs to hire a marketing specialist or a publicist or someone to do your Instagram content and all that stuff. And, and, you know, I have, I have had really all around great experiences with my publishers. I have been very lucky that way. And in fact, I haven't felt 
I haven't been too terribly pressured myself. I've been really lucky. But I work with, I'd say, if I'm working with 10 people, 10 writers, nine of them, and maybe the 10th isn't saying anything, nine just feel like, oh my God, I thought I wanted to be a novelist, but I guess actually my secret wish is to be a Instagram influencer. (laughs) That's what my editor wants. How do I make that happen? And I just, but the thing, the thing is, is that the publishing can be, especially in American, it can be very stuck in its ways. And I have to say, I mean, say what you will about the advertising industry. They're very nimble, right? Like, you know, people all of a sudden want outdoor fire pits during the pandemic. They are going to find a way to get the word yeah. out about, right? Yeah. Um, and and publishing has not found a way to be that nimble. And, and I see a lack of nimbleness with a sort of data analysis. And the numbers don't really play out that much. You know, even a simple Google search will lead you to many examples of writers and celebrities, especially who got huge seven figure book deals because they had, you know, 1 million, 3 million followers on such a place. And then the sales didn't follow. You know, you can have sometimes less followers is almost better because they're probably there for a reason. I mean, I think the big example people point to these days is Billie Eilish, very popular singer, obviously, millions and millions of followers. And then her book, I mean, it did, it did well. Anyone would be happy to sell, I think it was 40,000 copies. That's, right. that's great, right, in these times. But um, when you think you're going to sell 3 million, and that's what your, your editor was banking on and based your book advance on, then that, that is a failure, actually. Right. So, so I don't, the numbers, they, they really don't often play out. The numbers start to play out when you have a writer like a Roxane Gay or an Alexander Chi or a Melissa Phoebos who have spent their adult online careers building true relationships with their followers. You know, right. people really go to their feeds because they're interested in their opinion. They sign up and pay for their newsletters. They're interested in their opinion. And when you have quality followers like that, that that's when the, the numbers start to be reflected in book sales. But, you know, there's just, we don't talk enough about the examples of writers like the author of where when the where the crawdads sing who you know she was what in her 60s i think and came out of left field the publisher didn't have a huge belief in that book she certainly wasn't online or anything like that and for whatever reason you know i should stipulate that i haven't actually read that book but i know that (laughs) was a huge success right huge huge success but but then you're going to hear all the time, oh my gosh, if you're, you know, past 40, this is not going to be a welcome right. place for you. No one wants to hear from you. If you're not on Instagram, you have no chance. If you don't have 20,000 followers, you can't possibly propose a memoir. And so, exactly. you know, my mission, it's true. I really just want to override everything that, that writers mm-hmm. are being told at conferences and um even in school and remind them that no no one is going to get anywhere except maybe Kim Kardashian without the storytelling being top notch. If you, if you, you can put lots of time into your Instagram and get all the followers and get a book deal based on your follower account. But if you haven't learned how to meet deadlines and craft a compelling narrative, guess what? It's going to be worse because you're going to be, your book will underperform 
And there's nothing worse, you know, a lot of writers have been so hurt in this industry by getting too big of an advance. And then their books wildly underperform and their publisher who was so supportive of their debut doesn't even want their second book. Right. You know, and these are things that we just don't, we don't talk about and we don't hear about. And yeah, I just feel really passionate about putting more clarity into all discussions about publishing and writing and just trying to encourage people to slow their role, you know, and right. put the yeah. writing first and really find a way to maintain joy in everything they do because a lot of uh, people and things and tasks and to do this are going to come at them trying to take that joy away. Right. <laughs> yeah. The, and this is exactly why I wanted to talk to you because it's you make so many wonderful points, but I also, and I know many writers that I've spoken to also relate so deeply with this. And I know myself and, and I, I don't ever, I don't like to use myself as an example in a bragging way, because I would rather get my teeth drilled than brag, but, (laughs) but I do like to use my my writing career as it is now as a bit of an example, because I was told exactly what you're talking about. Oh, really? Hmm. When I first wanted to start writing and I had started writing essays, um, they were very well received. People were really relating to it. I had a, you know, a nice little, little uptick in followers, but people who were coming to me organically by my pieces and because they related to the work. And I still distinctly remember going to one of these writing conferences and asking an author, very, very well-known author, you know, do you have to have a massive platform to write memoir? And she looked at me and she said, yep, you will not sell a memoir with under 20,000 followers. And because of that, and that whole kind of, and then of course I was like, oh, okay. And you know, you're, I went and hired a social media manager to coach mm. me how to, how to post mm. things at certain times and work with the algorithm. And it was so insanely overwhelming. And I spent probably a year of wasted time and money worrying, and like. money. Yeah. Time, energy, money that was all taken away from my writing to try to create this brand so that someday I could sell a memoir. And I finally got to a point where makes me so upset. Right. And yet, and exactly. And I know so many others who have done this. So then I finally got to a point where I had a a good investment where I invested in, in a book coach and an editor and she was fantastic. And she helped me prepare my proposal for my memoir. Cause I was just to the point that I was like, I just got to write this book. And I laid off the social media. I posted organically when it was something that I felt, you know, was fun Mm -hmm. or I really wanted to talk about. And I, when I tell you that I not only sold my memoir on my own without an agent, and then within the same week signed with an agent on my own, because I finally just said, you know what? I don't fucking care about all of these you know, almost rules that we have to follow. I was like, I know my work is good enough. I know that I can put the the passion and the drive behind it. I need to start believing in myself. And then once I do, someone else is going to. 
And like you, I, I'm publishing with a small publisher and I agree. I am so excited because they have the bandwidth to stand behind you mm-hmm. and to really say, we are your team. We are here to help you get out into the world. And though the process has not been perfect or one, you know, sure. t- totally easy breezy, stopping worrying about being this like marketing machine while I'm also trying to like, you know, lay my soul bare in a book (laughs) has made a tremendous difference. I'm so glad you shared, you shared this. I have so many follow-up points to what, you know, what, one thing about the small presses is they, they usually aren't paying their writers enough to demand, you know, Oh, start a newsletter, start a podcast, start a podcast. Some of the things that, um, larger publishers feel somewhat entitled to ask of authors because they're giving them, you know, sometimes not always a pretty hefty advances. And if I can go back to the moment where you went to that author at that conference, um, you know, he, here's the thing. If, if, if I had been the author and I have been people, this is probably the number one question people ask me these days. Um, can I publish a mem? Can I get a book deal for a memoir if I don't have a huge platform? And most people have heard the twenty thousand follower number. Yeah. Um, what I would have said to you if it had been me was, you are going to be hit with the barrier of twenty thousand. You are going to be hit with it's really hard to he- publish memoir re- memoir right now. You know all of these obstacles. But if you're willing to have some flexibility about who you're publishing with and you don't expect a huge amount of money, you'll find a way to do it. That's what, that's what I would have said. It, it's, it would be a lie for me to say, oh, please, that's garbage. Anyone can publish memoir. I heard the same thing and I had you know, a platform for books. And that also makes me want to share, you know, I get very angry. I can't even come up with words. Like, what the hell is platform? This is a very right. old-fashioned thing saying, like, you need 20,000 followers on Twitter. Twitter is dead. My, like, literary people don't <laughs> want to be there. Any- Nobody's there. There's a, a fun people at Instagram. And and then book talk, I see, I see people my age, I'm 43, like, trying to catch up. And they're making these right. lonely videos. And zero people are looking at them. So, like, let's take a big step back. And right. talk about what the hell platform is and why publishers are insisting that it's like four social media sites. When in fact, um, I have a friend just up the road. I use this example a lot because I think it's meaningful. Um, he's not super present on social media. He's older, so he's on Facebook a little bit, but that's kind of it. His people are on Facebook. and um, But he is like maybe one of the country's best knitters. And he's a Okay. Huge force in like the online knitting community Mm. and the online knitting community. I don't think the one he's in has like upwards of 30,000 members and he's sort of a shining voice. And he also happens to be a cookbook author who does a little bit of memoir in the cookbooks. And, um, you know, a standard pitch these days, if you're trying to sell a proposal, you would be told, oh, no one gives a shit about your side hobby with crocheting, knitting, whatever. Um, When in fact, he's so beloved in that knitting community that his books always hit the bestseller list because his his knitters 
show up and buy the thing. They're excited for him. And, you know, I have a book coming out in May, as you mentioned, that um, it's a memoir, but it deals with how returning to horseback riding got me out of, a, of a, a bad depression. You do not have to like horses or have ridden to appreciate it, but you know, we'll see how things go. But like, I think that my horse people are gonna show up, you yeah. know, and I'm not shying, I'm not shying away from telling my publicists like, hey, let's go. <laughs> we literally had a conversation the other day. I was like, I'm an active member in this like barefoot, yeah. community like I, I I do this anarchist thing where I don't put <laughs> shoes on the horse and right and there's 4,000 members and like you post something they are there I mean you know like the gaming community these these uh underground if you will <clears throat> non-literary if you will because mm -hmm. a lot of these people are very literary I have much I see more activity there than on Twitter or Facebook which are just right. sort of cemeteries with smashed Heineken bottles all over the place you know what I mean so <laughs> yeah so just like when you hear you need a platform and then you realize gosh I'm on I haven't posted on Twitter since 2017 and I have 13 followers don't feel deflated you, I should mention this would be a good time to do a little PSA I have um, a class if you go to my website under classes I have a class on you know it is on building book proposals but it's most of the classes about getting around this platform issue if you if you're not very involved with social media and identifying your your platform both virtual and physical that actually matters to you you know right. whether it's like you're a doula and you're heavily involved in the birth community or you're a, you're a nurse and you're you know you speak at medical conference whatever the hell it is this it's a class that can help you zoom out and just get all this garbage out of your head about social media, social media, so that you can better prepare yourself. If you get the occasion to pitch something to an agent and they go, right. oh, no, no, you don't have 20,000 followers, you know, you pivot and you hit them with, yeah, but I've got, I'm like wildly active in the tango community and they're going to be so yeah. excited about my debut. It'll I'll come back pivot back to what you had mentioned there about what is a platform, because I think that that's a really, really good thing for us to start unpacking this platform and the way that they've kind of framed it. So it makes it sound like it's our opportunity to get out there and it's our responsibility, but I don't even try to think of it as a platform anymore. I try to think mm. of my social media as a, a way to interact, to connect, to network with my people. I'm worried about people who need my books yep. reading my <laughs> books. And so it's like, you make such a fantastic point because I've started, we've started the process of working on the marketing for my memoir that comes out next year. And, you know, they're asking you all the questions about your key mm -hmm. audience. And I'm always going, you know, okay, well, women and female identifying persons between the ages of 25 and 45. And then I was kind of stuck and I was like, okay, well, who else? And I was chatting with a friend and she said, well, the queer community, because mm -hmm. you're bisexual and people who are polyamorous because I'm polyamorous. And so you have to start thinking yeah. about all of the facets of yourself that you're putting into your writing. And I know I had someone who came to me, approached me about an essay that I wrote about recovering from 
sexual assault, but they approached me because of the part that I had mentioned about being polyamorous. And they said, you know, I've never endured a sexual assault, but I related so much to you talking about non-monogamy that I want to, I want to read more. I want to, you know, so your platform or whatever you want to call it, your community should be about, yeah, bringing those people Mm -hmm. in the, the ones that you're writing for. Because I love, I love that. Yeah. Because that's what we're doing, right? We're writing for our community and our people. Well, even the word platform sort of entails an actual architectural platform that's usually raised above other people, right? In in one Mm. way or another. And that's not the way to think about engaging with readers and potential readers. I mean, I think we should start calling it like an open house. What, yeah. what ability do you have to bring people from all different side doors into your house? So you have your polyamorous community here. You have essay writers here. You have people mm-hmm. who have lived abroad here, whatever the hell it is. And they, and they come in and we have to start stand. Oh, I remember what I was going to say. First of all, we have to start standing up for ourselves and not backing down. And we don't want to start yelling at the gatekeepers, obviously, no, but we need to find pride and confidence and say like, Hey, guess what? You know, I am in, I, I'm, people really respect me in the non-monogamy um, community and, you know, gender fluidity community, whatever it is, mm. and stick up for yourself. And also we need to, it's so important, and this is hard to do when everyone's strapped, but we really need to resist with our wallets. So mm-hmm. for example, if you are trying to shop a short story collection, and you keep hearing nobody wants short story collections, no one wants short story collections. I hope that you're out there purchasing short story collections. If someone says no one in hell is gonna buy, you know, a debut um, memoir from someone who's not on social media, I hope you go and do research and find, um, find memoirs by people who aren't big on social media and don't have this, you know, quote unquote platform and buy their book and put your money where you want Mm. your book to be so that we can fight back and be part of the sales that, that we wish to see for whatever it is that we're trying to publish, you know? And I think that also is, like you said, fighting back. It's also taking back the control mm-hmm. of, and this is something that I, I talk a lot about, you know, and I don't get me wrong. My agent is my best friend in the world. Mm-hmm. I'd be lost without her. I love her, but there really is this gatekeeping in the industry. And I find, especially in Canada, I'm not, I, I feel like the, the American market is so much bigger that mm-hmm. it might be slightly easier. But in Canada, we have a, an issue where there are so many, so few agents to authors that mm. it becomes a wildly competitive mm. uh, industry where we're all kind of, you know, trying to take each other out at the knees to get represented oh, or to get, you know, into those big five publishers. And I think that often makes it difficult for people to remember why they're writing and, you know, and, and they're more really just kind of trying to sell their writing. And yeah. I think yeah, exactly. we need to remember that, as much as an agent is going to pitch you to a publisher and a publisher is going to produce your book and get it on the shelves without the writers, they have nothing. No, they don't. They have nothing. And that's why I think we can do a little bit better job uh, sticking up for ourselves. Yeah, exactly. And really starting to take back the control on determining 
how we market ourselves, how we should market ourselves. And also, you know, not falling victim to this whole, like needing to have an aesthetic and needing to have a a set brand that isn't authentic. I think a brand, there is no issue with setting yourself apart in a bookstore, on a shelf, at a conference, at a festival, but we're just not being authentic. You know, Mm -hmm. it's like the Pinterest boards of like, Mm -hmm. I need to have a baggy cable knit sweater and like round glasses to be taken seriously as a writer. And it's like, no, just write. If you're really, if you're truly a writer, no one's going to see you because you're going to be in your house (laughs) on your Gmail inbox all the time. So yeah, I, I, you know, true writers are in like pajamas, but sure. exactly. <laughs> but it, well, and that's the thing is, I feel like we're really being, you know, pushed to kind of put on these almost uh, horse and what is it, dog and pony yeah. shows, um, to make ourselves marketable as wide as possible. And I, it's just not authentic and you're going to burn out. You're going to, you just overwhelm yourself. And then in turn, your writing's going to suffer. And like you said, you know, oh, it's great. You had such a wonderful aesthetic and a following and a platform. So you get this huge book deal. You have all this, you know, pressure and your book flops. Right. Well, where do we go now? You know? And I mean, I think it's worth mentioning if, um, regarding what you said about agents in America, we have lots and lots of agents. It's still hard as heck to get one, but there are, mm. there are a lot of agents, but you know, there's also fair number of places, university presses, especially micro presses that don't want an agent, you know, right. you can submit without an agent. So that's worth remembering. And then also if you do get lucky enough to start having conversations with agents who want to represent you, if you know for sure, like, I'm never going to go on Instagram, or I'm not going to go on Twitter, or, you know, or the opposite, I'm really passionate about making YouTube videos, I'm really passionate about making TikTok videos, you should have that discussion with the agent up front, because there's nothing quite like you sort of keeping your mouth shut, and the agent thinks they've signed someone who's ready to go on all the things, and then they get a book deal, and you have a conversation with your editorial team, and they're like, great. So, you know, can you send out your newsletter and do all these things? And then you tell them after you cash the check <laughs> and they slotted your book <laughs> into the lineup that in fact, you're, you know, agoraphobic and um, right. are, hate being online. You're going to have some serious problems then. So you need, yeah. you need to have these discussions up front so you can make sure you're aligning yourself with, with the proper business partners exactly, who are going to support yeah. you instead of constantly trying to change you, you know, so that they're going to be like, okay, person with the knitting community, let's freaking mm-hmm. roll with that. You know, yeah. now I know I'm going to pitch you this way. Exactly. And, and the thing mm-hmm. is, is that I think, you know, also, you know, there is that side that is the gatekeepers that are putting the immense pressure, but I think that we're really, we're really overlooking the huge portion of the industry that is, is ready and willing to help there. Yeah. Is, you know, I, hundred percent. I can't count how many times I would be so overwhelmed and feeling like, oh my God, I've just got so much on my plate. And, and I write to my publisher, oh my God, I just, I have to push my deadline back a couple days and I'm in like full ready panic mode. And they're like, it's fine. Yeah. (laughs) It's okay. Because of course they're going, you know, ultimately they're going to make a better profit of a better book of a happier author. Absolutely. So there are, 
teams out there that want to produce and want to keep you happy and want to make this process as fluid and as joyful as possible. You just, like you said, be upfront and you'll find those people, you know, you just have to have the courage. You do have to have the courage. And of course, often that courage comes with a little dose of professionalism. You know, if you never, I, I, someone gave me a great piece of advice that was like, if you're a little unsure of the email you're sending, put it in the drafts and maybe sleep on it, right? When, when you are being honest with your publisher about something, I mean, if it's, if it's uh, you know, I, I need a little extra time, I need to extend my deadline, that's fine. But if you're having a real problem with a publicist or something like that, and you feel you want to be honest about it, which makes sense, generally, this is when you engage your agent, if you have one, to handle those interpersonal conflicts. Yeah. <laughs> but, but generally, I think honesty um, is the best policy and, and, and always remembering that the people on the other side are human and struggling mm-hmm. with their own stuff and very busy. And they've been living through the same pandemic and the right wing regimes all over the world that we have and the environmental issues that we have, they're not immune to them. And that's always helps me when I'm not getting the kind of response I was hoping for. I always just think, well, I bet if I could see their inbox, (laughs) it would be pretty overwhelming. You know, that's, that's always helps me. I, I think that's, I think that is really important to know. We're all really in the same boat and there are so many wonderful publishers, wonderful agents and editors out there who they're doing their job because they want to see our kinds of books on the shelves just as much yeah. as we do. So I think that's wonderful. Um, I'd like to circle back to talk about your memoir. Um, you know, I fully believe that we all put the same amount of emotional labor into anything we write, memoir, nonfiction, fiction, coloring books. I I genuinely believe. But in that, when we're writing memoir, when we're writing anything that is touching so closely on raw and vulnerable personal experiences, I think that there is an added dose of that emotional labor. And, you know, especially you're, you're talking about how the year of the horses um, was about coming out of a a depression. Mm -hmm. How, how did you find that process? Did you, did you start writing the book while you were still in that mm. period of time or was it a, a while after, you know, how did that book kind of, how did mm. that seed start to grow? Yeah. Um, thank you for this question. I don't know that I can be brief in my answer, but <laughs> um, <laughs> that's okay. I, it started, I think it was 2017 or so that I, I started really struggling with mental health um, 2015, I guess it was, um, I've, uh, have, oh, I've struggled with chronic insomnia and something just started to shift with my hormones where <clears throat> I truly stopped sleeping for months and I, medication couldn't get me to nothing, nothing was working. And I was really, I dropped so much weight and I'm not, you know, I'm not a, a large person to, to begin with. Um, and I was just so, I couldn't drive. I was so sleep deprived. My relationship with my husband and my daughter, who was only two, everything was completely Fantastic. unraveling. I had a book due that was big, big book contract. This was the commercial publisher. Um, and I missed my deadline. This is, I am like type A Virgo. So to me, that was a huge <laughs> failure. Mm-hmm. Um, long story short, I ended up 
kind of a last ditch effort, um, taking a riding lesson. When I was six, seven, eight years old, young girl, I rode and I absolutely loved it. Kind of came to an end because my parents divorced and you know, the, just a bunch of different things. The money, the money yeah. situation changed. And I took that riding lesson, I think I was 37 years old. So it was a good 30 years. Yeah. And um, it completely offered me the portal that I needed to things that I need the runway of the memoir to express, you know, but generally right. I was a 37 year old wife, mother, writer, all of my safe places, like including my vagina, by the way, which is so <laughs> viewed when you're pregnant and birthing and miscarrying, right, which happened afterwards. Mm -hmm. And then my writing, which had been private, and then all of a sudden was public in a very public way, because again, the, the book, the book had been a success. Um, I had no, I have felt no privacy anymore. And I couldn't get my mind to stop spinning even and I couldn't even have privacy in dreams because I wasn't sleepy. But when I found horses again, everything became muffled and quiet and private. Because I, if you don't still your thoughts around an animal, even if they're what we call a bomb-proof horse, um, you're going to have problems. You know, the horse might spook or they feel your nervousness when, when, as you're approaching. And it, it saves me. It saved my marriage. It saves my relationship with my daughters. It saved my writing. And um, so how that book started was I ended up pretty quickly going from just kind of standard group lessons to polo, kind of out of nowhere. Wow. I mean, the book, the book gets into this um, mm -hmm. arena polo, which it's polo, but it takes place in an enclosed space and it's a lot cheaper and more accessible and right. less classes than the grass polo that most people think if they know polo, that's what they think of. And um, I was almost 40 by, by that time. And I wasn't like gifted or anything. I fell off a lot, like, but I just kept <laughs> coming back to it and back right. to it. And it was like this necessary medicine. And so I wrote, I wrote an essay for the New York times about learning polo as an almost 40 year old. And I got, I got such wonderful response from people I never expected to hear from a lot of mounted police, police women and policemen wrote me. A lot of wow. people in the military wrote me. Um, a lot of women, you know, of childbearing age or who had had children wrote me and said, fuck this, this, this makes me want to get on a horse or this makes me want to take right. up gymnastics again or fishing or whatever the hell it was. And um, it took me a while like a, a lot. And that was 2000, 2017. I had three books come out after that, you know, mm -hmm. so it just sort of filtered around in me. And I originally tried writing it as a novel. I, I always start with the wrong form and eventually find <laughs> my way. And um, I mean, one big decision I made was that when I had a draft that I knew wasn't great, but I just felt like I couldn't go any further we were at a place because I have both uh, larger commercial publishers at this point and, and smaller presses where my agent was like, okay, well, if you want actual money, you know, in another big book deal, like you've had in the past, you're going to have to clean the hell out of this and really commercialize it. Um, or 
we can work with Maisie, who's my editor for Costa Alegre, which came out with Tin House. And I said, Maisie is the only one who can help me with this book. You know, I know that I won't get significant money, but it's worth it for me because she knows me. We've already right. worked together. And I know that she'll see this vision. And so that was kind of a first decision, which I mentioned because I didn't put money first, which, which I think was necessary. There's so much. This was right about when there was a reckoning with um, racism and, and whiteness in publishing. So a lot of heads were rolling, many of them deservedly so, right? There was huge turnover. But Maisie was just sort of a safe, like a redwood at Tin House. You know, I didn't feel like she was going anywhere. So that was kind of a big, important decision. And, um, you know, shared that first draft with her. And she was like, I can see it. You know, this is not the draft, but I can see it. And and then it was, she's just, a, I, I just, working with her is truly incredible. She knows me really well. Mind you, this is someone who doesn't like horses. She's pretty scared of horses. <laughs> and, um, but from our first conversation, I think within 15 minutes, she opened up a crack in the ice and really opened up something for me. And I ended up storyboarding like you would with a film. Sat down, I did it pretty quickly. I had kind of a, an awakening and I storyboarded the book in very close to the format that it'll be published in. And ultimately we, we pretty much sealed the contract based on the uh, potential of that storyboard. Right. And then, and then, you know, I wrote it and rewrote it and um, absolutely needed her. It was very hands-on. Um, my agent was very hands-off for this particular book. She knew that we, we needed this very close partnership. And, and um, I went very deep in the writing, but I, I have to say that was not the most challenging part. It's always challenging to get things right. But for me, the really hard part came after and I'm still in it. The really hard part was sharing that book, which I really, I gave it my all. I don't hold anything back. I share things that some people would prefer I didn't share. And, um, you know, I decided to share it with everyone who's in the book. So this includes my husband, my mom, my family, my daughter's a little too young, but I told her about it. And um, that now that I'm on the other side of it, kind of, right? Because it'll come yeah. back up when the book's published. Um, I can definitely say that that was the most challenging thing. Um, I'm not, because I mostly write fiction, sharing my work and, and asking for feedback and sitting with other people's you know opinions of what they think that is not something I'm comfortable with um or enjoy <laughs> yeah. um but but thankfully you know with maybe one exception that sharing which I did early probably nine months before the book will come out um made the book so much better because you know what I didn't remember everything correctly Right. I had some really helpful conversations with my mom, especially, but my husband to some other relatives where I'd got stuff wrong. Right. You know, I really got stuff wrong and it, it made it such a better book because I show myself in the book getting right. it wrong. Um, Which so, is such a human experience. And I love that. Absolutely. Such a human experience, you know, a memory, especially today. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's not a, it's a, it's very moving. It's a slippery fish. So that looking back was probably the bravest thing. I've <laughs> very yeah. hard. Um, and, 
And then, you know, there'll be other hurdles, like how is the book going to be received? And will my family who have basically given me kind of the green light, will that light change? Uh, right. If the book does well, will it change if the book doesn't go well? You know, I just, I can't really tell if that green light will hold. Um, so, and of course there might be people kind of secondary tertiary characters mm. who change how they feel about you. So, you yeah. know, it's, it's, it's an ongoing thing, but um, you, you make yeah. a wonderful, uh, you make a wonderful point there and I'm happy, not happy that you're going through that, but I'm, I'm happy that we get to discuss that because um, you know, I do talk a lot on the podcast about the emotional labor during the process and yeah. all the things we go through, but you make such a wonderful, wonderful point there because especially with memoir, um, you know, I, it, it's hard to kind of see what's coming when you're in the middle of it. And I think it also hopefully can encourage some people who are going through their own depression to say, to have the courage to say to people around them, like, I'm not well. Yeah. You know, because you, you, your actions can be misinterpreted. You know, exactly. I know that when, when I was struggling, I was just always shouting at my daughter and snapping at her. And I just mm -hmm. didn't, I couldn't see it. I didn't have the clarity of mind yeah. that I have now when I, you know, now I'll say to my daughter, like, mommy has a, quite a stressful week like I'm sorry if my energy this week is this or that I think you might see me on my phone a lot I try to tell her where I am kind of emotionally so that she if she sees me on my phone she doesn't say to herself like oh mommy doesn't care well she might say that but at least I've tried to tell her right. I'm in pre-publication honey and this is what it looks like yeah but I think that what you're doing is you're advocating for yourself. And I think yeah. as parents, it's so seldom that we do that. And I think the generations of parents that came before us and before them, mm -hmm. it simply wasn't an option. You were a parent, you were a hero, you were That's not a, a human, point. you were in a person. You're talking about compassion, you know, and compassion can take a hard time to, I mean, I know that I, I hope, I think that this book will bring me closer to some of the people I feared sharing it with, you know, I love that because I and, have new compassion for them. And that's beautiful. And, you know, at turn in time, I think that them being able to see the inner workings of what you were going through and what, <laughs> exactly. you know, the way that your mind works, I think that in time, it also helps them find the compassion for you too. So that's, I think so. We, we shall wonderful. find out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's all, you know, it all comes out in the wash, and, and but they'll still be, they'll still be, you know, Ralph Stevens, John, the third, who's going to be like, I don't like horses. So didn't read this book one star. Right. You know? Or, or <laughs> I didn't like the shade of green on the cover. Like I it, hated the typography one star. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. People are really passionate about font. So be careful with yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. It's too late. <laughs> oh, okay. Wonderful. Well, I'd like to um, close out our chat today with a segment that I like to call our weekly fuck yeses. Oh, so it. what it is, is we're going <laughs> to share our fuck yes moments from the last week or so. Okay. Basically where something unexpected or expected went really, really right. And oh, you're going to take the opportunity to, you know, you deserve to celebrate it. So okay. <laughs> what would you say was a, a weekly fuck yes for you? Well, I, this is a great and welcome question because I, I run um, a collaborative learning program called The Cabins. 
um, their collaborative retreats for artists. And we usually do these amazing group retreats and we haven't been able to run one since 2019. And we, just wrapped up our first kind of comeback group retreat yesterday. It started Friday and it, well, anyway, it's, it's five days long and wow. we brought six artists um, to the woods here and everyone was, you know, vax boosted the whole thing. And we just decided to freaking go for it. And oh, it was, it. you know, I'm biased, but it really felt like a phenomenal success. And I watched people make beautiful bonds that I think will be lifelong. And we, the idea of the cabins is that everyone who comes teaches, teaches the other artists something in the discipline of their choice. And usually it's not something that they identify with their profession. Like we've had people teach pasta making or um, buto movement or capoeira or whatever. Wow. And, and um, so we learned all kinds of new skills this weekend and people were challenged and we went to some deep emotional territory and it was just no one wanted to leave and they're, <laughs> they're sharing beautiful posts on Instagram and it 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 makes me feel really good because it's a it's a total labor of love I mean it is non non non-profit <laughs> you I know love it. and um it's something that I often think god I don't have time to run this and and uh but it made me feel like keep going this is really special and uh yeah so that was my fuck yes from last week oh, the cabins it's called the so cabin happy and the website is thecabinsretreat.com and i'm not sure when this is airing but we have applications opening march 1st um for some amazing solo residency programs so go to oh, the wonderfulretreat.com yeah oh that's fantastic i love it and if you, the listener, would like to have your weekly fuck yes featured on an upcoming mini-sode, write into the Lonely Writers Podcast at gmail.com. I think that we all st- we all need to start celebrating a little more. So mm-hmm. that's fantastic. Okay. Thank you again, Courtney. And uh, can you let our listeners know where they can find you to keep up to date on when uh, your memoir is coming out and the yeah. cabins and all that fun stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So the, I think the easiest thing is you go to CourtneyMom.com. Mom is M-A-U-M. And if you subscribe to my newsletter, there's a little button. It's it's free. And um, that's, it, I think I only send it twice a month, but but that's where I put everything together. The news Wonderful. about the cabins and upcoming appearances and classes that I teach. My website remains kind of the easiest place to um, interact with me. So fantastic. That's awesome. Well, thank you again. And we're all so excited. Hopefully we'll get to talk to you again, close for the release. I would love of that. Your memoir. And um, yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for having, I really enjoyed this and good luck with your own memoir and, and sharing it with the people who are in it or close to the material. Thank you for having me, Eden. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't hesitate to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you are listening. And if you would like to show your support, please head over to our Ko-fi page using the link in our show notes to make a donation. This show is a passion project, and without your support, we couldn't make it happen. Thank you for listening, and until next time, Lonely Writers, be well.